You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 116. We are back from our one-month break. I now live in a different house, and we start with a big thank you to all the podcast Patreon supporters, including David and Rosa, who have decided to support the show over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar, where they now get access to special Patreon-only episodes. If that is something that sounds interesting to you, go check it out. This week, we jump into a place that we have not discussed for a few years now, the Italian front. Our last visit to this front was way back in episode 47, which basically feels like ancient history at this point. The plan was to catch back up on the Italian front last year, but the other events of 1916 just sort of steamrolled over everything else. This means that we now have a lot of catching up to do, and it will be done over the course of seven episodes. This will provide everybody with a longer narrative for the Italian Front, which hopefully will help everyone follow the story. Looking ahead after the Italian Front, we'll jump into the situation in Russia in 1917, which is, of course, quite the story. So buckle in for a summer of lengthy stories, which I think will actually work out great for these two events. For the Italian Front, we rejoin the events at the Battle of Asiago. Then we will cover the 6th through 11th Battles of Isonzo, and finally the Battle of Caporetto. This will take us through all of the events of 1916 and 1917 on the Italian frontier. During this episode, we will do just a bit of catch-up so that everybody knows about what has happened before, before we dive into the planning of the Battle of Asiago, sometimes called the Battle of the Trentino, which was an Austrian attack, really their first big one of the war on the Italian front, which took place at the beginning of 1916. We will then be finishing off today with a discussion of the naval war in the Adriatic, which is one of the many little side stories that I have mapped out for these episodes. Instead of working them into the narrative, I have put them at the end of some episodes, and they will cover a subject for the entire war, not just for the time period we're discussing. This should hopefully give you some really neat information, and also allow me to talk about all these interesting topics that don't really justify a full episode, but also don't really fit in with what we're talking about. 
So I hope everybody can put on their memory hats as we jump back in time to 1915. Italy had entered the war in that year, with the goal of getting back the territories on the Adriatic around Trieste from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This drive to recover these territories, the Italian Irredenta, or Unredeemed Italy, was a cause that dated back to the Italian unification, when Austria had taken the territories that had been traditionally Italian. This war aim caused them to launch multiple attacks in 1915. All of them were launched on or around the Isonzo River, in areas like Mount San Michel, Mount Sabatino, Gorizia, and the Carso. Over the course of five battles, the Italians threw themselves against the Austrian lines, and they achieved very little. For their part, the Austrians put just enough troops on the Isonzo to keep the line from collapsing treating this area as a secondary and sometimes even tertiary front behind the Russian and Serbian areas of the conflict. So while the Austrians were able to hold back the Italian attacks, it has always been a close-run thing, far closer than it would have been if more Empire troops were committed. However, as the year came to an end, Conrad wanted to move away from just standing on the defensive on the Italian front, and that desire would set the stage for the first Austrian offensive against Italy, often called the Battle of Trentino. Conrad was always a commander who wanted to attack. Before the war, he had literally written entire books on attacking. And as 1915 drew to a close, he thought his army was strong enough to launch an attack against Italy. This belief was buoyed by the conquest of Serbia and Montenegro in late 1915. And so as Conrad sought an area for the attack, he settled on the Trentino region of northern Italy. The goal of this attack was to move south and out of the mountains, to fall upon the t Italian troops north of Venice. If this happened, and if the Austrians were successful, they would be able to reach the Adriatic, at which point, since the attack would be taking place west of the Isonzo, they would cut off all of the Italian troops on that front, which represented a good portion of the Italian army. It would not be crazy to think that if this attack had been completely successful, Italy would have been pushed out of the war. Its army would have been a shell of its former self at the very least. There was one small, tiny, little possible problem. As planning for the attack progressed, Conrad realized that he did not have enough troops. He thought that he would need about 16 full-strength divisions, giving him a 2-to-1 advantage over the defenders. And in early 1916, Austria simply did not have this number of troops available to pull for an attack on, a, on the Italian front, especially with the need for men on the Russian and Balkan fronts. This pushed Conrad into a decision I'm sure that he did not enjoy. He had to try and convince the Germans to send help. Conrad went to Falkenhayn and claimed that he could win the war with this attack. All he needed was for the Germans to either contribute troops directly, or if that was something they didn't want to do, then send more troops to the Russian front so that the Austrian troops could be freed up. At this point, Falkenhayn was preparing for his attack at Verdun, which made him less than amicable to siphoning off his reserves on the Western Front to help his Austrian ally. Also, he did not actually believe that the attack would work. He believed that Conrad was grossly underestimating the number of troops that would be necessary, and instead of needing 16 or so divisions, he would need something more like 25, and that number of troops was just not going to be assembled unless reserves were stripped from everywhere else in the war. 
Due to this, Falkenhayn flatly refused to assist the Austrians, since he believed that the best possible outcome of their plan was maybe moving the line on the Italian front a few miles from its current location, and Falkenhayn was just not interested in putting German resources up for something like that. Even with this rejection, Conrad was not convinced that he should not launch the attack. He would just have to find the troops from somewhere else. The only two places with any real number of Austrian troops were the Russian and Asanzo fronts, and so Conrad took four of Borovic's best divisions from the Asanzo, the formations least affected by the fighting in 1915, and this amounted to roughly half of the defending troops in this area of the front, and their absence would certainly be felt later. Conrad also took a good portion of the heavy artillery batteries from the Asanzo, since that was the only way to concentrate the amount of artillery necessary for the attack. Then from the Russian front, Conrad took six divisions, because surely the Russians could not launch an attack on the Austrians in mid-1916, say June, from a guy named Brusilev. These ten divisions, plus the troops that were already in the area or moved from other parts of the empire, would give Conrad a total of 15 divisions, and more than a thousand artillery pieces. The original plan was for these troops to launch their attack in mid-April, a date chosen due to a very mild alpine February, which made Conrad hopeful that this good weather would hold through March and April, but this would not come to pass. On March 1st, the weather turned and snow fell heavily, resulting in snowfall of over 2 meters on some sections of the front that was going to be attacked. This meant that the only way open was to postpone the attack until the middle of May. From the beginning, the Austrians were also having serious logistical problems. There were a very small number of quality roads through the mountains in this area, where the attack would be launched, and this made it difficult to stockpile the number of troops and material that was necessary. The weather in March made what would have been a difficult task under the best of conditions into something that felt almost impossible. These problems did not damper Conrad's spirits too much, and from his headquarters in Silesia, he would continue to send detailed instructions to his commanders at the front right up until the attack began. Sometimes these were too detailed, without leaving any latitude for changes due to the situation at the front, a situation that Conrad was not well apprised of. Also, and it was impossible for Conrad to know this at the time, but the delay in the attack would have severe consequences in June. Delaying until mid-May made it meant that there was no chance of the attack successfully concluding before the Russian summer offensive was launched, an offensive that would come to be called the Brusilov Offensive. But that was in the future, and would be of small comfort to the Italians when the attack was launched. Speaking of the Italians, let's look at what they were up to in early 1916. After the failure of the fifth battle of the Asanzo, Cadorna quickly moved on to planning his next effort. When news started to filter back to him of a buildup of Austrian units in the Trentino region, he did not immediately react. His biggest concern was that it was simply an Austrian feint to get him to pull troops off of the Asanzo, and in that way, it made him more confident and dedicated to launch counterattacks on the, on the Asanzo front. When the Italian commander of the First Army, General Brusati, asked Cadorna for reinforcements, he was told instead that he would get none. Cadorna believed that there were already more than enough troops to hold the line, and instead Brusati should be putting more efforts into improving his defensive positions, which would prevent any problems. Brusati had made some critical errors in where he spent his men's efforts, and how he arranged his forces before the attack. 
Instead of focusing on strengthening a defensible front and creating a strong secondary position in case of an attack, he had spent the previous six months pushing his men slowly forward, as close to the Austrians as possible. What he should have been doing is consolidating his positions on the best defensive ground available, even if it meant giving up a little territory to the Austrians. As it was, his men were pushed up so far that they were spread out in a bunch of advanced positions, often poorly sighted, easily neutralized, and isolated by the Austrians. When Cadorna came to visit in May, he instantly sacked Brusati due to these mistakes, and a new general was brought in, but by that point it was too late to truly rectify the situation. The Italians were simply stuck with the situation that Brusati left them. However, he cannot bear all of the blame, and some of, it, some of it must be shifted to Cadorna. He was well aware of the Austrian plans before May. He even had detailed information about the coming operations from Austrian def- deserters, and he did not choose to give the area either more attention or more men. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary BGW void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. The bombardment from a thousand guns would begin on May the 15th. The shells fell on the inadequate defenses and caused havoc among the defending troops. Then the Austrian attack began, with well-trained troops at its head. These troops were some of the best trained in the entire Austro-Hungarian army at this point in the war, and they went forward on a front of 20 kilometers in length, and on that entire front they were able to rupture the Italian lines. Some Italians fought bravely against the oncoming tide. However, far too often these troops were abandoned by the Italian artillery and by the troops on either side who just wanted to get away as fast as possible. Overall, the advance would reach a depth of five miles on just the first day, with the advance continuing for several more days. While these things seemed good for the Austrians, there were already some worrying trends that were beginning to form. Heavy guns and their ammunition had to be laboriously moved forward over the terrain, robbing the continuing advance of any possibility of either retaining or regaining the artillery advantage that they had enjoyed in the opening days. Also, on the Italian side, they were beginning to respond. All that they could see was a large army of Austrians cascading down the mountains, and there was a good amount of panic 
both in the upper areas of the military command as well as in the government. Cadorna was one of the people who remained calm. He instantly began transferring troops from the Asanza front to bolster the crumbling Italian units, and he organized a final line of resistance on the Asiago Plateau. Over the next two weeks, as the Austrians continued to push forward, 180,000 men would be transferred off of the Asanzo or from training depots, and they manned the new defenses. By the middle of June, there would be 300,000 more on the way. These reinforcements were in the future, though, and on May 20th, Conrad extended the front of the attack to be even wider, hoping to hit the Italians while they were unorganized. This was also a show of confidence, with Conrad believing that things were going very well. However, this, the spread of his forces was quite thin, but for the moment, it wouldn't matter. By May 27th, the third Italian defensive line fell, and they had to fall back into the line on the Asiago Plateau. On that day, the Austrians captured the city of Arsario, following the next day by capturing Asiago as well. Things seemed to be going great. The attack was rolling well. The Italians seemed to be in full retreat. Nothing could possibly go wrong now right? As soon as the size of the attack became apparent to the Italians, besides moving reinforcements from the Asanso, Cadorna also asked the Russians to move up their planned June 15th attack to the beginning of June. Now, the 1st of June wasn't possible, but the 4th of June was, and that became the new start date for the attack. This would be the Brusilov Offensive that we discussed last year in episodes 84 through 88. And for those who don't remember, this was the Russian attack that in just two days pushed the Austrians back almost 100 kilometers and would capture hundreds of thousands of prisoners. Conrad had taken his best divisions from the Russian front, which would have been very beneficial when the attack fell upon them. The complete collapse of the lines in Galatia meant that Conrad had to almost instantly begin transferring troops back to the Eastern Front, and by June 13th there were already two divisions back in Galatia. This would be the precursor to the halting of the Trentino attack on June the 16th. The Austrians had reached the southern end of the Asiago Plateau, but would go no further. With the shift to the Russian Front, the Austrians retreated from their furthest advances on June the 25th. Before they did, they ransacked the cities of Arsario and Asiago, before falling back to a line of well-prepared defenses behind them. The Italians pursued them and launched counterattacks against these new positions, but these were uncoordinated and unsuccessful. This would leave the Austrians in control of roughly two-thirds of their largest gains, and in control of the northern portion of the Asiago Plateau. For the Austrians, the 50,000 casualties they had suffered were bad enough, The worst part was that these casualties allowed them to occupy positions that did not provide much of a strategic advantage, and holding onto it would simply be a drain on Austrian resources for the next few years. So essentially, they were sacrificed for nothing. On the other side, the Italians had suffered almost 150,000 casualties, but at this point in the war, they could still replace those. For the Italians, the casualties would not have a great effect uh, after the battle. But back in Rome, after the initial shock of the Austrian attack wore off, Prime Minister Salandra began to try and remove Cadorna from command. There were two big obstacles to this. First, the king imposed a stipulation, and he would only allow this if there was full cabinet support for the move, and if there was a viable candidate to take his place. 
The second piece of that, the suitable replacement, was more difficult than you might think because there was just not really any kind of obvious candidate. However, trying to obtain full cabinet support would be Solandra's undoing. First of all, when Parliament opened session on June the 6th, instead of blaming the army for the disaster, they blamed Solandra. He tried to shift the blame back over to the army but was unsuccessful, and instead a vote of confidence was called, which he lost, and the government fell. Then, as the offensive ended, instead of it lowering Cadorna's standings, it increased it due to the view that he was now a hero for being able to rally the army and stop the attack, uh, similar to Joffre and the Marne. This view was pushed heavily by the Italian press, which made Cadorna even more unassailable than he was before the attack, which would carry him for quite some time. Conrad experienced the opposite effect. His prestige would reach a new low in Vienna. He had overreached in his attack, and his belief that the Russians could not possibly launch an attack had proved to be false. He had underestimated the number of men he would need for his attack, and Brusilov robbed him of the ability to transfer in more after it had begun. He would be blamed for the failures to defend against Brusilov, which would lead to some responsibility for Romania entering the war in the later in the year. This failure was a huge contributing factor to the continual fall of Conrad, which we have discussed from various angles over the last year, and this was really a huge step down for him. Now we shift to the Adriatic. As will sometimes happen, this section of the episode is brought to you by a random journal article that I grabbed a few months ago that led me down a bit of a research rabbit hole. In this case, it was Italy and the War in the Adriatic, by Renato Sicarezza, which covers the events in the Adriatic during the war. For the most part, this sea is a forgotten theater, without the large actions that would visit the Mediterranean, Atlantic, and North Seas. When Italy and Austria-Hungary were allies before the war, they knew that even with both of their navies combined, they would still be heavily outnumbered in a war with the British and the French. Because of this, their goal was to try and keep the Otranto Straits open to allow their ships to move freely between the Adriatic and the Mediterranean, and they would do this with light surface ships and submarines, not just brute force with big uh, fleet ships. However, this plan would fall apart when Italy entered the war against the Empire, and Italy would be in a better position in terms of dreadnoughts during the war, and also pre-dreadnoughts from previous years, but Austria-Hungary would have better heavy cruisers. So it was sort of a, this person's good at this, this person's good at this, uh, which one's better, who knows. When the war started, the two sides decided on different modes of operation. For the Italian navy, their plan was to provide assistance to the Italian army as they advanced towards Trieste. This would involve coastal bombardment, a blockade of Trieste itself, and maintaining control of the northern Adriatic. For the Austro-Hungarian navy, they were preparing to constantly launch surprise raids against the Italian coastline. This last objective was assisted by the fact that most of the Italian Adriatic coast was low-lying and easily accessible, and the Italians had not invested it in any sort of fixed or mobile coastal gun platforms. When the Austro-Hungarian attacks began, the Italians were caught off guard and unprepared, but they reacted rapidly and the navy changed their plans accordingly. 
Mines and submarines were placed along the Austrian coast to try and restrict movement. Patrols of both aircraft and light ships were put on constant patrol. The Italian fleet was spread out among three main ports on the Italian coast, reducing the time it would take for them to respond to a raid. And finally, they used armored trains to try and defend the coast. These trains were placed on the Italian coast and could easily defend the length of the coastline using pre-existing rail lines. Now, here is Renato Sicurezzo. Here is Renato Sicurezzo to explain how this was done in the previously mentioned journal article. Quote, All the trains were capable of traveling at 60 to 75 kilometers per hour and each operated along about 60 kilometers of track. So by staying at a center point, it would never have to travel more than half an hour to reach any point where the coast was being threatened. The trains were kept at the ready, with their teams on board and boiler pressure up, awaiting the alarm at any minute, which usually happened at first light, the enemy fleet having crept up to the coast under the cover of darkness. To prevent the recoil of the guns deforming the rails, there was a breathless minute where the crew, after it reached the battle area, jacked up the train, removed its wheels, and anchored it securely to the bed of the track. End quote. These efforts and the threat from German and Au- Austrian submarines had the effect of making the Adriatic pretty static for the rest of the war, after maybe about mid-1915. In some ways, it felt like a watery trench between the two countries due to the amount of defenses on both coasts, which made it difficult for any decisive action to occur. Even though for the most part there was very little action in the Adriatic, one of the largest actions occurred on May 15, 1917. During this action, the Austrians attacked an Italian convoy on the lower Adriatic, around the Otranto barrier, where the Entente had assembled to keep primarily Austrian submarines bottled up in the Adriatic. Five Austrian d- destroyers and some attack aircraft attacked a convoy, quickly sinking one cargo ship and a destroyer. This prompted an Allied response, with two British light cruisers, four Italian and three French destroyers sortieing out to meet them. This developed into a running battle, with both sides bringing the enemy into range of their coastal batteries at various points. The results were two Austrian destroyers damaged, one Italian and two British destroyers hit, and one French destroyer sunk by a mine. Not the largest or most decisive naval action, but interesting nonetheless. Next week, we will jump back to the Asanzo by looking at the 6th and 7th battles of said Asanzo. Thank you for listening and have a great week.